0: Welcome to Rants and Reason. I am Chuck.
1: I am Karen.
0: I am a liberal.
1: And I am a conservative. And as Abraham Lincoln reminds us, we are not enemies. We are friends.
0: We are friends. How are you, Karen?
1: I'm good. I have a lot to rant about today. I feel very ranty today.
0: I'm going first, because I got a lot to rant about. (sighs) Okay. I got something on my mind, and I got to get it off.
1: All right. Let's hear it.
0: Well, you can't you can't hear any you can't turn on the news without hearing about the Iran deal.
1: No.
0: And I don't really want to talk about the Iran deal. Maybe it was a good plan, maybe it was a bad plan. But a few things strike me about this. It's just like Obamacare. Mm-hmm. They want to tear it up. There's no viable alternative to this. Right. All we hear is it's a terrible deal. Right. There's no plan B. What does a good deal look like? That was a question. Rhetorical. (laughs) More than anything, to me, it fosters this idea around the world that we can't be trusted. Right. And whether it's coincidence or not, North Korea now used it to say they don't want to talk to us.
1: Right. I mean, honestly, I think that they were looking for a reason to do that anyway, but right. Yeah, obviously doesn't help.
0: But why, where does this all stem from?
1: Why don't you tell
0: us? It's because we can't be trusted because our president lies. All of the time, Karen. All of the time. He lies.
1: You lie. Just kidding. Yeah. It was like the guy at the State of the Union with, with Obama. You yeah. lie. Okay.
0: Sorry. You lie. Go ahead. Now, I Rex- wanted
1: somebody to do that so bad at Trump's State of the Union. <laughs> I was hoping he would... I wanted you to, would... to
0: be Melania.
1: I mean, somebody, <laughs> yeah. You <laughs> lie.
0: But on Wednesday, Rex Tillerson really trolled him badly.
1: Okay.
0: He was speaking to soon to be graduates of the Virginia Military Institute. And he said if our leaders seek to conceal the truth, or we as people become accepting of alternative realities uh-huh. that are no longer grounded in facts. Wow then we as American citizens are on a pathway to relinquishing our freedom.
1: Hmm. I was just, I was saying, wow, because, I mean, he basically called out the whole alternative fact thing.
0: (laughs) It's just Oh, there was very little question as to who he was aiming this at. Mm -hmm. And he said, a responsibility of every American citizen to each other is to preserve and protect our freedom by recognizing what truth is and is not. What a fact is and is not, and begin by holding ourselves accountable to truthfulness and demand our pursuit of America's future be fact-based, not based on wishful thinking. Not hoped-for outcomes made in shallow promises, but with a clear-eyed view of the facts as they are and guided by the truth that will set us free to seek solutions to our most daunting challenges. So he really troll. He was going after Trump there.
1: Right, definitely.
0: But the fact is, our whole political system is based on the fundamental principles of the Enlightenment. Yeah. You remember that because you're around for it.
1: No, that's now you. these
0: <laughs> I know. <laughs> now, these facts or these principles are that there are objective facts, discoverable through investigation, empirical evidence, rationality, and science. Now, political discourse involves making logical arguments and adducing evidence in support Ooh, of your argument.
1: Adducing, adducing. You know what? I think I'm influencing you.
0: You know, I knew that word before I met you. So anyway, <laughs> rather than asserting your own self-serving version of reality, see, that's what you just did there. <laughs> and it reminds me of Senator Patrick Moynihan, who said, everyone is entitled to his own opinion, not his own fact. Did
1: it really remind you of him, or did you look that up?
0: No, it reminds I that's a famous thing. You don't know that?
1: No, I did. I just didn't know you did. Just kidding. Wow.
0: Really? (laughs) That's that's what I get from you. Sort of. Do you know how many times I've stuck up for you when people are like, Wow, she's very pretty, but and this is what I get from you. But anyway, let me get back to I'm I'm
1: sorry. (laughs) Okay.
0: Let's get back to Trump's lies. You lie! Really, this does bug me. Mm -hmm. It has a tremendous impact on public opinion, particularly with those who are in his base. Mm -hmm. And you know this research in psychology has shown us that once misinformation is initially encoded into a person's mind, it's very difficult to change.
1: Right, which is why I often, like, hit my head up against a wall. It's also why I drink wine. Anyway, go ahead. (laughs)
0: In fact, if you attempt to correct that after it's been imprinted on their brains, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: it often reinforces this misinformation.
1: Right. Because they can't face the fact that it was misinformation. Mm
0: -hmm. So if we don't have a set of agreed upon facts, it becomes impossible for us to make judgments about our government or hold it accountable.
1: That's right. That's right. I mean,
0: I don't believe one man can kill a democracy. I don't believe one man can kill a country. But- his lying is just unbelievable it, it's incredible it, really
1: is. it, is. it and, is and we it's...
0: just it's it we've grown so accustomed to it that it's it's just disheartening mm-hmm. yeah you, know, you may like him but you can't you can't logically or rationally say he isn't the worst liar you've ever met <laughs> i mean I've never met anybody hes the worst liar I've ever seen I
1: don't- necessarily think he's a bad liar because i think he believes his own lies so i think he it's not bad lying it's just that he does it so often bad i mean bad in that he's not it's not like you can tell he's lying right it's not like it's transparent that he's lying it's only transparent because the truth is so obvious you know it's it's obvious that he's Playing a crowd at his rallies and he'll repeat whatever gets the most reaction over and over and over again without any thought to what might what that might bring or to whether or not it's possible or anything. I mean, it's just I've never seen anything like it.
0: And we might have listeners that like him and maybe like his policies, Mm -hmm. whatever. But what are his policies? Because he lies. He (laughs) lies about everything.
1: Right. Right. Yeah.
0: I mean, I, I raised three boys. When they were teenagers, they didn't lie like that. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they did, and I didn't catch them. Maybe they were smarter than me. I don't know. But that's my rant.
1: Well, that was a very astute and well thought out rant, Chuck. (laughs) I'm usually patronizing. No, (laughs) no, I thought it was really beautiful and really good. And here's the thing: I did not, I didn't write mine out or anything. This is just like off the top of my head with stuff that I've been going off about for several days now.
0: So I was better prepared.
1: I think you did that on purpose to make me look bad. Okay.
0: (laughs) If I I can make you look bad, I'll do it, yeah.
1: (laughs) Anyway, one of the things that is driving me crazy right now, there are a lot of things I could rant about. I mean, so many things. But one of the big ones is the lack of compromise. I'm going to kind of piggyback off of you and the Iran deal and – we just keep trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It drives me insane. I don't think we should have ever gotten into the air rain deal. I don't like it. I think that there's a lot of really, really, really not good stuff about it. However, we're in it, right? It does more not damage. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we were in it. But it does more damage to just pull out of it than it would have to try to revamp it while in it. And the same thing with Obamacare. Why can't people just admit, this is not good, let's fix it, instead of, we're going to do it ourselves. It drives me insane. Drives me insane.
0: Why can't we ever say, this is not a bad start?
1: Right. And this is part of why nothing ever gets done. Because each administration talks about how the previous one before did such a terrible job, and then they're going to redo it and fix everything. And then- and then a new president comes in and they revamp systems and nothing ever gets done. I think about what people in medical fields had to deal with, with Obamacare. So like switching over a lot of the computer systems and a lot of the things that that went along with that, that now are having to deal with whole new systems. and <laughs> It's like, how is anything ever supposed to be functional if we don't agree and compromise sometimes and try to figure out what works? And fix what doesn't. We're just gonna keep trying to reinvent the wheel. It drives me insane. And really, honestly, the lack of compromise in our lawmakers is partially our fault. I hear so many people say, you know, well, we elect these people and they don't do anything. Okay, when you elect them, you can't say, you better not compromise on this. You better do exactly what I say. Don't compromise. Don't compromise. And then when they don't compromise, you blame them because they don't get something through. It's our fault. What we need to do, what would actually affect change in this country, is if we demand that our lawmakers compromise. What would that even look like if we said, we want you to go to Washington and compromise, reach across the aisle, get stuff done?
0: And don't give us alternative facts.
1: (laughs) What a world that would be. What a world that would be. Well, Best, We're going to get into the podcast and and what we're talking about, what we're ranting about is kind of relevant with that too, because we're kind of talking about a compromise. We're talking about a compromise within the criminal justice system and a proposed solution. So, and you know, both sides of it, pros and cons, but so this podcast installment is going to be part of a continuing series on the war on drugs and its impact on criminal justice we want to discuss the administration of justice through the court system itself. And we're going to hone in on one area that we don't really hear a lot about, and that's drug court and all of its pros and cons. And it kind of goes back to what we were ranting about in the lack of compromise and being willing to try to figure out what works and what doesn't. But before we move forward, We want to make it clear that we're working off of a few core beliefs. Number one, Chuck and I believe that marijuana should be legalized. So we don't really consider the devil weed in this discussion, okay? Gallup shows at least half of Americans favor legalization, and this number is trending upwards. So it's just a battle that people who don't want to see it happen, it's going to happen. So number two. In every other drug category, about 65 to 70% of Americans find those drugs either a somewhat serious problem, a serious problem, or a crisis. So, those that want to see across the board decriminalization for drug offenses, it's not going to happen. It's not on the horizon at all. So, we have to function, examine, and offer solutions within the framework that there are a lot of drug offenses that are going to be criminalized. Number three, one can denounce the quote-unquote war on drugs, but drug addiction remains a problem. So we can bemoan the tactics used to fight addiction, which change with every administration. We went through that in our episode about the history of drug policy. Every administration, and you saw it seesaw back and forth. One would be like, we're going to take a hard line hard law approach to drugs. And then the next one would be like, we need to be about rehabilitation. It would just go back and forth and back and forth, depending on what events were in the news at the time. But all the people, when they argue about all the tactics used, if police do this or sentencing does that or whatever, they they like to diagnose the problems, but we really aren't offering solutions pointing out the problem really does very little to solve it unless you have a focused and targeted mission. Which honestly, I mean, if you think about it, that might be where the term war on drugs really came from, because you have to have a focused and targeted mission to accomplish anything with this. Well, we we really wanted to focus our attention today on drug courts, because they're really one of the few actual solutions that have been proposed and have been implemented.
0: That's right. Now, Karen, sit back, make yourself comfortable, and I'm going to tell you the history of drug courts. In 1989, officials in Miami-Dade County, Florida, established the nation's first drug court. The special court was designed to bring drug treatment fully into the criminal justice system, treating offenders with a history of drug abuse for their addiction, while simultaneously ensuring supervision and sanctions when needed from the courts. The movement for an alternative court to sentence drug offenders emerged from the rapidly evolving reality that the nation's decision to address drug abuse through law enforcement mechanisms would continue to pose significant challenge for the criminal court system. In 2004, 53% of persons in state prison were identified with a drug dependence or abuse problem, but only 15 were receiving treatment. Since 1989, drug courts have spread throughout the country, and there are over 1,600, at least, in all 50 states. Now, the drug court movement reflects a desire to shift the emphasis from attempting to combat drug crimes by reducing the supply to addressing the demand. Kind of like capitalism. That's what I was going to say. You stole my line. (laughs) It's like a capitalist system. Now, drug courts use the criminal justice system to address addiction through an integrated set of social and legal services instead of solely relying upon sanctions through incarceration or probation. In our second episode, in our War on Drugs series, we discussed the surprising research that showed the Bush administration pumped a lot of money and effort into drug treatment and rehabilitative programs. Drug courts were one of the main initiatives, and Obama's administration kept it going strong and even expanded them in many areas.
1: Right, right, which was surprising to me and I'm sure to a lot of other people too. There are generally two models for the drug courts. There's the Deferred Prosecution Program model and the Post-Adjudication Program In a deferred prosecution or a diversion setting, defendants who meet certain eligibility requirements, such as little or no drug abuse history or a record of previous crimes, are diverted into the drug court system prior to pleading to a charge. Usually these are misdemeanor cases. Defendants are not required to plead guilty, and those who complete the drug court program are not prosecuted further. Failure to complete the program, however, does result in prosecution. Alternatively, in the post-adjudication model, defendants must plead guilty to their charges, but their sentences are deferred or suspended while they participate in the drug court program. Successful completion of the program results in a waived sentence and sometimes an expungement of the offense. However, in cases where individuals fail to meet the requirements of the drug court, such as a habitual reoccurrence of drug use, they will be returned to the criminal court to face sentencing on the guilty plea.
0: Yes, they will. Now, how do you get into a drug court?
1: I don't know. Ask me, Why Karen? don't you tell us?
0: Well, ask me and I'll tell you. How
1: do you get into drug court,
0: Chuck? Well, there's eligibility criteria, Karen. Okay. And though eligibility requirements differ by state and county, generally defendants must be charged with drug possession or a nonviolent offense, and must have tested positive for drugs or have an established substance abuse problem at the time of okay, arrest. Okay, we're
1: talking, and and for the rest of the podcast, we're really talking about the second model, correct? Those that are, right. it's like a felony. Not
0: the deferred prosecution. Right. Yeah.
1: Right. So they have to have at least two. They they have the charge and have tested positive.
0: Okay. Right. A nonviolent charge and tested positive or have an established pattern, a pattern of abuse. Now, if a drug court's receiving federal funding through the Bureau of Justice Assistance, there's a requirement to exclude persons with current or prior violent offense. A violent offense can include the mere possession of a weapon at the time of arrest, even if it wasn't brandished or used. You know, used. I,
1: don't, I don't think that's fair. I think if it was used, that's very, very different than if it was brandished. Don't you?
0: No. Not if it's a gun. Okay. No. All
1: right. Anyway, go ahead.
0: I disagree with you on hmm. that.
1: I didn't also, really think that through. Are- it was kind of just spontaneous, so I really don't know if I feel that way or not.
0: Okay. Just for the rest of the show, if you decide to blurt something out, Mm -hmm. say it in your head (laughs) before you say it out loud, okay?
1: (laughs) I'm feeling a little quirky tonight, so.
0: (laughs) Well, also, persons who are currently facing charges for a drug offense may be denied entry into the drug court because of a past wholly unrelated offense. This narrow scope of eligibility can limit the program's effectiveness. Now, the impact on it researchers impact of drug courts on recidivism and cost researchers in several studies found that drug courts reduced recidivism you didn't think i was gonna get i that didn't actually i almost
1: put that you know, i was the
0: gonna the <laughs> thing I know. yeah
1: i almost put that for me i really like saying the word recid. i can't even say it now look at that
0: <laughs> yeah recidivism you i love you saying get.
1: recidivism it's just fun to say recidivism it's a terrible thing i mean but anyway, go ahead.
0: I don't know what's wrong <laughs> I don't with don't either. Researchers in several studies found that drug courts reduce recidivism among program participants in contrast to comparable probationers. For example, one study found that within a two-year follow-up period, felony rearrest rates decreased from 40% before the drug court to 12% after drug court implementation. Wow.
1: That's substantial right there.
0: It is. It is. And in a study published in 2007, it showed a significant success in cost savings of drug courts. Study results included reduced recidivism (laughs) for drug court participants up to 14 years after drug court entry compared to eligible offenders that did not participate. Drug court judges that worked longer with the drug court had better participant outcomes. Reduced recidivism. So you thought I was going to stumble over that, didn't you? You kept putting it in here. And other long-term program outcomes resulted in a public savings of $6,744 on average or an estimated $79 million over 10 years.
1: Actually, you wrote that part. Okay. <laughs> okay.
0: I was, I was trying to sabotage myself.
1: <laughs> I think you were just trying to prove how intelligent you really are, which – You are incredibly intelligent. Smarter than me, actually. People say that I'm the smart one, and you always defer and act like I am, but you're actually the smarter one.
0: Well, people say that I'm the pretty one, too. (laughs) Well, (laughs) there you
1: go. I think it's also important to look at the testimony, so to speak, of people who've gone through drug court. And Vice, along with the Marshall Project, shares a story that highlights the positive effect of drug court for one young lady. Sit back, Chuck, and listen and let me tell you a story. The scene is an idyllic small town in Maine. A young girl, Abby, 12 years old, feeling like she didn't belong in her world, as most 12-year-olds tend to do, met drugs and she decided that she loved them. By 17, she was drinking and smoking weed, but also snorting pills, doing cocaine, and experimenting with hallucinogens. She even became a dealer, and she said that she thrilled on the power that came from that
0: this this sounds like a sad story, it Mommy. It's
1: a sad story. <laughs> I don't that's kind of creepy. I don't
0: <laughs> I, know. I know what you said tell me is you were gonna tell me a story. I was just was expecting something about porridge and some bears and but go ahead,
1: all right. An unexpected pregnancy didn't even stop the usage, and her little son was born in 2004 with neonatal abstinence syndrome. They took the baby to the neonatal unit to weather withdrawal of horrific proportions. She went on to describe how being a mother didn't stop her from both using and selling. Finally, she was arrested for drug trafficking. For a year, she cycled in and out of court, waiting for sentencing. Over a year later, she was arrested again for violating bail with continued drug use. After three weeks in jail, this young woman was offered the opportunity to enter drug court or treatment court. The choice was to attempt the rigorous program or to serve a 30-month sentence. Abby described the experience on the first day of drug court with, It was clear from day one that treatment court would be nothing like what I was used to seeing in the justice system. The courtroom no longer felt adversarial, and I didn't just feel like I was another number on a docket. As part of her treatment initiative, she had to go before her judge every week. A judge that she felt knew, cared about, and was invested in her. Abby completed the program in 2006, intent on maintaining sobriety. And she credits that opportunity with changing her life. Now, I have a personal story I'm going to add to that. She had her little son in 2004, and he was substance abused. I've mentioned before in previous episodes that I am an adoptive mom, and my youngest, who was born in 2004, was born with eight different drugs in his system, And his mother, his birth mother, went through drug court. She was in there for a very, very long time. And he was born addicted and had terrible withdrawal issues. And we fostered him for a really long time while she was still in drug court. She had been in drug court several years before she had him and then was in drug court for about a year and a half after we were fostering him. So I kind of have some personal experience on the other side of this, on the opposite end of it. The story of Abby, it really brings up a very important thing to consider about children born exposed. There is a huge physical and social cost of neonatal exposure. Research shows that neonatal intensive care expenses can range from $25,000 to $35,000 for the care of low birth weight newborns, and can even reach 250000 over the course of the first year of life. And that's just the withdrawal effects alone. There are just mind-blowing costs when you look at the effects of substance abuse on infants. And this is just infants. There are the hospital and medical costs for neonatal services during the immediate period following the birth. There's special costs relating to babies that are exposed to crack and cocaine with my son. That was one of the exposures that he had and his lungs were so weak. He was on breathing treatments and had a whole lot of things related to that, a lot of pulmonary issues. And so along with the low birth weight and the withdrawal, he had those issues as well. There are costs associated with babies afflicted with fetal alcohol syndrome, and that brings up a whole multitude of medical issues. I fostered a baby that had severe, severe FAS, and we were constantly the doctor with different medical issues. There are costs associated with opiate exposed babies. Now, again, um, my son was also exposed to opiates, and it and this was part of the withdrawal as well. He was withdrawing from both cocaine and opiates when he was born. And
0: oh, Karen, yes how how long does it take a baby to withdraw? Do you I know?
1: wasn't. I did not get him until after that happened. But it. I think it depends. Each drug is is a little bit different. And there's different. effects that come from each one. So the, I, there's not really a definitive answer. And maybe someone in um, medical field on our page could could answer that question specifically. I can look back at his medical records and tell you another time. But I do know that it hurt to touch him. And even a year later, we got him at, at right at about a year old. He was already, I mean, he couldn't, he didn't like to be touched. It it bothered him to be held because, and this was from the cocaine exposure, his nerves were so raw that just touching him and holding him hurt. So he wanted that affection, but then he would buck and like um, tighten and kind of hole up he, it because it, it physically hurt him to be touched. It still does. It's still a lot of um, sensory stuff bothers him a lot. Because of, because of that. Some of the other costs include in-house housing costs for drug exposed babies, generally during the longer term period right after birth and, or extending out from the birth. And then there's also outside care costs for drug exposed babies. And that includes foster parenting. Most of the babies that are born into the drug court system not every single one, and, and that's a totally different issue that we can talk about another time, whether or not I think it's right or wrong or whatnot, but if someone has been in drug court, they've tested negative uh, or tested positive several times, they find out they're pregnant, a lot of times those babies will go into foster care, and that's what happened in our situation, and we had him again for about a year and a half while she tried to work the program, and I think it took about 10 positive tests before they changed the plan for reunification. So I do know that, um, that they did work tirelessly to try to reunify the family, but I don't know if that's always the case, but obviously foster care is a cost that substance, substance exposed babies costs society, but the costs, the budget costs that taxpayers, the The financial burden that taxpayers have to bear is nothing, nothing compared to what these kids have to go through, what they have to endure. And they're amazing kids. And I'm so glad that they're here in the world. I'm so, so glad that I have my son. But I just imagine if he'd grown up in other situations where he didn't know how to deal with that, he would probably end up in jail. And Increase the financial burden on society. And I'm so, so thankful that there were intervening things in his life, whether it be us and and other interventions that put him on a totally different trajectory. But we don't think about the costs, the overall costs to society when we don't try to intervene and help people who are addicted to drugs. But... As of 2005, statistics show that at least 3,000 healthy births happened due to drug court intervention. 3,000 babies that could have been born exposed and had all of those issues didn't because of drug court. And that was in 2005. So just imagine how many that there are now. It's, it's huge when you think of it. Right. So, I mean, you, take, you right. take all these things into consideration, and drug court really does sound like the perfect solution, right? I mean, it does.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But there's a
1: lot more to consider.
0: Well, there are some problems with drug there courts, um, things that have arisen. The legal and constitutional issues arising in drug courts are complex and pervasive. You have First Amendment issues and religious freedom issues with mandating treatment. Now, generally, the courts have ruled that because a person can lose their freedom if they do not attend faith-based programs, the defendants are in a coerced position. So mandating participation in AA or other faith-based programs does, does violate the Establishment Clause.
1: Right. Right, but the thing that those were – I think there were 17 cases that were listed as ones that were found to have violated the clause. Um, The fact of the matter is that most of the cases that have gone before the court have been – found that there were other options available or that AA didn't really constitute a faith-based program because the faith element of it was a choice and not something that was mandated. So these were 17 that were found that whatever treatment program they were put into made them take on some religious aspect that violated their constitutional rights.
0: Right. However, if alternative non-faith-based programs are available, defendants can be required to attend them
1: and usually they're given a choice if i when the programs that we were reading about there's usually a choice but
0: right you also have problems with drug tests and
1: searches Um, and searches and searches
0: Mm -hmm. and especially those initial roadside tests i know houston gave them up the department of justice has said that you shouldn't use drug tests as evidentiary for evidentiary purposes. Right. Yet in drug court they are you you know in court you can't use a polygraph test because they're not 100% reliable. Right. Um, but in drug court you can use drug tests as evidence.
1: But they usually so, and, do several different ones to make sure. But because the goal is right. to rehabilitate people, so they they really work very very hard to do that. But it still is a constitutional issue. And the searches that they allow sometimes of the rooms in the treatment programs could be considered a violation.
0: Right. And you have due process. Basically, you have to plead guilty to be eligible right. for it. Now, not the deferment ones, that, but right. the drug right. court ones. We're only
1: ones. really talking about the second model here. But right. I think that um, another thing that is really sketchy is how some of the roadside drug tests kind of lend direct people into it's it's really the initial entrance into drug court is where due process becomes the issue was it really something that they should i mean should they have had more time to figure out how they wanted to plead and things like that that really violates their due process constitutional rights Much of the cited problems with drug courts is the perception that a judge is allowed to play doctor by deciding what treatments are best for someone in their courtroom. When a judge rejects a medical treatment alternative like methadone, then that criticism is very, very valid. But the question that we found really difficult to answer is how how often does this type of rejection actually occur? We did find a few instances where justices were accused or judges were accused of, of not allowing um, methadone as a treatment, but it doesn't happen very often. And usually judges defer to the treatment counselor that is there to what they think is best, and there's usually a medical aspect to that. But not always, and there should be, and that is a very, very valid criticism. One of the major players that's trying to take down the war on drugs is the National Drug Policy Alliance, and they state that the problem with drug courts is that they do not utilize a biological medical health approach. But it seems to me that utilizing a biological only approach and accusing courts of playing doctor are kind of contradictory criticisms, right?
0: They are to a degree, Um, but I I do have a problem because every court we looked at seemed to be a little bit different. Yes. So there did not seem to be a, and maybe there's a behind the scenes, maybe there's things we don't know about. There did not seem to be a standardization of best practice.
1: Right. And that's definitely something we're going to address coming up. And I do want to make it clear, we haven't been through drug court. <laughs> so everything that we're doing is based on research and what we found in that research. So we don't know for okay, sure. I,
0: I ask that you just speak for yourself. On
1: <laughs> have you been through drug court?
0: No, I have been to drug court, but I have not been through okay, drug court. Well
1: then I will speak for myself. I have not been through the drug court process in every...
0: I've not been through the process. I've been to the court.
1: I have not been there through the process in every county and every state, so I can't say for sure how things are. It's just based on the research. Um, And this is what we found to be true in the research. Despite the criticisms, the idea of a drug prevention arm of the court system is not a bad thing. And in fact is one of the few programs that is somewhat effective against a tragic and debilitating problem. We believe it is beneficial to expand such programs, but there really does need to be some streamlining. Here's what we see as proposed solutions. First, we need to continue to adapt to the bio and social research that's being presented. There's a lot of emergent research on addiction, and we must pay attention to that. Judges must not deny something just because they don't understand it, and they need to rely on and defer to medical professionals on proper medical treatment options. Another issue is insurance and the inconsistency with when an offender comes before them, what insurance is available. So there needs to be consistency when it comes to signing offenders up to Medicaid and make sure that they get the treatment services that they need. There also just needs to be general consistency within the court-offered intervention programs. Maintaining a standard operating procedure would really mitigate many of the constitutional issues. And it probably needs to be a federal standard operating procedure. I hate to say that because I do believe in limited government, but sometimes having the federal guidelines kind of helps states keep a... A consistent It helps states keep a consistency with one another. So one of the biggest issues that we have is with the word court. Drug court is not a court. It is an arm of the sentencing aspect of the court system. It is a diversion treatment option designed to keep people out of prison, which is a very, very worthy goal.
0: Well, and the other problem that we saw... Is the fact that the defendant must plead guilty before being eligible.
1: Right. The biggest problem. <laughs>
0: yeah. As, as we said, they typically require a guilty plea for admission. And according to the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, prosecutors in many cases require defendants to waive certain rights. Mm-hmm. Defense attorneys are not given ample time to gather and review evidence and properly advise their clients. Defendants may plead guilty without knowing their options or may be innocent. So, in our view, what is best for society is that if this person completes the program, they should walk away without that crime on their record. Definitely. Now, we applaud the effort to curtail low-level drug offenders from getting stuck in the penal system abyss. Uh, the attention the intention behind this intervention while although not always executed perfectly is a positive and important step in the right direction right there needs to be improvement but to the critics of this system we ask what is a better solution yes and that is all we have to say about that
1: mhm we would like to thank everyone who takes the time to listen to us you can find us on Podbean, Stitcher, and iTunes. We would appreciate you dropping us a positive review there. We would appreciate it a lot. We haven't gotten any positive reviews lately. I mean, we haven't gotten any bad reviews either, but we love good Luckily. reviews. So.
0: <laughs> we have a pretty active Facebook group if you would like to join. You can find us on Facebook at Rants and Reason Podcast Facebook group. We also want to thank our moderators for all that they do to help maintain the discourse there.
1: They're fantastic. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rance Reason. If you would like to help us offset the cost of the show, we do have a Patreon page. And you can find us there as Rants and Reason. We really want you to know that we supo- we appreciate all kinds of support. We appreciate word of mouth recommendations, shares on social media, iTunes reviews, anything to get
0: – Retweets.
1: Right to get our information out there, we really, really appreciate it.
0: And we especially appreciate our Patreon supporters: Jennifer Anon, Stephen Potts, Ben Finton, who is once again nominated for best true crime podcast, and
1: congratulations, Ben!
0: Yes, Jeremy from Podcasts We Listen To, Timmy, who's in Amsterdam this week, Austin. John Payne, I was just on his show, The Weekly Wrap-Up. That was a lot of fun.
1: You did a great job, and he has a really great podcast, so people should check it out.
0: He does. The Weekly Wrap-Up. Yeah. um, Yeah. And we have Tony. Tony Carr. And, of course, go ahead, Rudy
1: the Wonder Dog, the world's most dangerous canine.
0: That's right.
1: (laughs) Well, do you remember Abby that I told you about earlier?
0: I did not like that story.
1: I know. I know. I'm sorry. But if it makes you feel any better, there is a little more to the story.
0: Oh. I'm going to sit <laughs> After- back.
1: Chuck, sit back. Listen. Okay, now I'm just kidding. After finishing her treatment, Abby was able to begin working at a local medical center. And she eventually obtained her state license as a substance abuse and addiction counselor. Eventually, in 2012... Abby was asked to serve as the treatment provider for the very court program that she graduated from. She had stood behind that podium as an addict, and now, now she was working alongside the same judge that presided over her case. On her eight-year sobriety anniversary, Abby approached the judge in chambers. Your Honor, she asked, do you remember where you were on this day eight years ago? He laughed and said, I don't think so. And Abby proudly reminded him, I was standing before you as a criminal. Just think, these two went from defendant and judge to colleagues working together to achieve worthy goals. If they can do it.
0: we It had a happy ending.
1: It did. It did. It did. The
0: story had a happy ending. So did. if they can do it.
1: We can too.
0: Thank you, everyone.
1: Bye.